Father, we praise you. We thank you. You are truly good to us. Thank you for our family here. You have really just blessed us with so many wonderful people, and we just feel so close to each other, and we appreciate that, and we love you so much. We want to serve you. We want to follow Jesus. Uh, So we seek you because we need your help. We don't know what's in store for us in the future, but we do know that with your strength and your help, we can endure whatever we have to face, and we can endure it even with joy. And then we get to have that great family reunion when Jesus returns. We long for that day. But equip us now from your word to be prepared. Help us today to understand what the fear of God means and what it means to long for your return. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. There we go. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 39 is page 655 in the Bibles that we give away. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. Someone will bring you one. It's our gift to you. And we're just going through the book of Hebrews verse by verse. And today we're at this section, how should we live knowing Jesus is coming back soon? Now, there's a, I want to start off with a video clip of a movie. It's an old movie called The Apostle, and, I, and it, this is a, a scene. I love it. It's the beginning of the movie, and it just shows the heart of this man who wants to reach people for Jesus Christ. And so watch this. Son, can you hear me? You don't have to say anything. Just know I'm here to help you. I'm a minister of the Lord. I want you to know the Lord loves you here today, and I love you. Now, if you can't answer, just nod. If you can't nod, just, you know, think it. Answer me in your mind and in your heart. If the Lord were to call you right now, would you be ready? You accept the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. Are you ready for him? Are you ready to follow and accept him at this very instant? Now, if you open your heart and let him come here, he will stand with you whether you go home or whether you stay here with us. And if it isn't your time, he'll stand by you, brother, both you and your wife. He'll deliver you through this entire ordeal. Now, listen to me now. There are angels, even in this automobile at this precise moment. He'll send his angels here to watch over you. Now, do you accept him here today? Yeah. Thank you, Hey, Jesus. mister. Thank you, Jesus. You have to get out of there. You can't be in there. You hear me? Yeah. Now, Let's when go. That, now, when that ambulance gets you in there on your way, you're going to fly down the highway. Lord's going to have a whole flock of his angels lead you on that Come highway. on, get out. Hear me? He's going to go all the way with you. You've taken the Lord today. He's going to go all the way with you because you both are his champions here today. Praise God. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Don't have to thank me, son. Thank our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You're in his hands now. Bless you both. Bless you both. Whenever two or more gathered in my name, there would I be also.
love that scene. That's a, it's a good movie, too. But the question is, are you ready? We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. Are we ready? And, and God is good. He gave, you know, in the movie, you know, gave him that one last opportunity, and he prayed to receive Christ. And that's, it's that simple. But are you ready? And do you have a proper sense of awe concerning God? It's something that's missing in our day and age is this sense of the fear of God. I want to read something from Thomas Trevathan's book, The Beauty of God's Holiness. And he talks about the fear of God. And listen to what he says. He gives a little illustration that might help. He says, perhaps in order to understand the fear of God, it will help you to imagine receiving a gold-embossed invitation to visit privately with the President of the United States. Picture yourself flying to Washington, being whisked from the airport to the White House in a presidential limo and accompanied by Secret Service agents to the door of the Oval Office. The door of the office is opened. How do you feel? A little shaky, certainly, thrilled by the privilege, wanting to be where you are more than anything, but also nervous, scared to death, wanting to run away as fast as you, your now rubbery legs will carry you. Perhaps this exercise in imagination can give you some inkling of what fear is in the Bible. It is that jumbled up combination of thrilling privilege and appalling apprehension that we tamely call Awe. If you knew for sure that Jesus was coming back in one week, how would you change your life? Jesus is coming back soon. We just don't know how soon. Our passage teaches us the answer to the question, how should we live knowing that Jesus is coming back soon. So let's dig in. And it starts out, this is uh, the fourth of five warning passages in the book of Hebrews. If you remember the structure of the book, these Jewish believers are being persecuted and they're being tempted to go back to Judaism. And so he is proclaiming how superior Jesus is throughout the whole book. But interspersed within that, he gives these warnings of falling away, of walking away from God. And here we see the fourth warning passage. And in this passage, we see in verses 26 through 31, a call to fear God. This is the harsh warning against deliberate sin. Look what he says. For if we deliberately go on sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire about to consume the adversaries. Anyone who disregarded the law of Moses died without mercy based on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment Do you think one will deserve who has trampled on the Son of God, who has regarded as profane the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? 
For we know the one who has said, Vengeance belongs to me, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That is a harsh warning, right? <laughs> okay, I mean, you read that and you go, Whoa, it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We see this warning. Now, interesting enough, the early church used to debate on passages like this and the warnings in Hebrews, they used to debate whether it was possible or not for a Christian to sin more than once after getting saved. There's a whole book called The Shepherd of Hermes that makes this point. Some actually wanted that book to be put into the New Testament, okay, that argues you can only sin one more time after your baptism, okay? Now, we're all thinking that's a little extreme, right? Okay, and it is, <laughs> right? Okay, but that was what they were concerned with when they read passages like this, whereas today we have completely pendulum swung the other way around. We don't even talk about sin anymore, do we? It doesn't, you know, oh, God, he doesn't care if we sin, we're saved by grace, go ahead and live however you want to, it doesn't matter. And that's the attitude we have, but listen, If this passage is saying anything, it's saying, fear God. Let me continue the story with Thomas Trevathan. He says, but we must not stop here, for we need to grasp two other aspects of the fear of the Lord if our understanding is to begin to be adequate. Another exercise in imagination may help. Picture yourself in relationship to the President of the United States again, but this time you are his personally selected emissary. He has entrusted you with very broad powers to represent both the country and himself. In the course of these privileged duties, however, you have become disillusioned with him and cynical about your responsibilities. You know that he isn't all the media makes him out to be. Really, you deserve much more credit than you are receiving. He seems so unappreciative of the loss and in income that this government service is costing you. In a foolish act of deceit and rebellion, you give your loyalties to an enemy intelligence service, becoming a key player in a plan to discredit the president. At first, this new way of life is even more fast-paced and exciting. It promises some vindication for underappreciated you. All it requires is constant deceit. The payoff promises to be first rate, but ultimately you are caught in the web of deceit. And the proper penalty for treason is death. Again, Secret Service agents whisk you off to the White House, this time wearing handcuffs. Again, the door to the Oval Office swings open and you march in to face the president. How do you feel under these circumstances? Again, the proper word is fear, but its connotations are very different. There is still an element of awe, but now the central feelings are guilt, shame, and stark terror. All is hopeless. If the roof could cave in and cover you from his justified anger and your justified punishment, you wish it would. The fear of God is what we're seeing in this passage. In verses 26 through 31, we see rejecting God's law brings severe punishment. 
26 and 28 remind you again. He says, for if we deliberately go on sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrificial a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire about to consume the adversaries. Anyone who disregarded the law of Moses died without mercy based on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Notice he's saying here, if we disregard the law, if we say, I don't care about sin, I'm going to just go ahead and live however I want to, that's what we're facing here. That's what he's referring to here. And so rejecting God's law brings severe punishment. If we had time, we'd look up Nahum and Zephaniah, and you would just see just how God feels about sin, that he hates it, and that he's going to judge it. And it's like, whoa. Rejecting God's law brings severe punishment. And then in verse 29, how much worse punishment do you think one will deserve who is trampled on the Son of God, who is regarded as profane? the blood of the covenant which he was sanctified and who has insulted the spirit of grace. By the way, in this passage, we notice that there are degrees of sin. How much worse punishment because the sin that they were committing, it seems and appears in verse the end of verse 29 that it is the blasphemy of the spirit. He has insulted the spirit of grace. And so we see the severity of this punishment. They had so much revelation, so much understanding, and yet rejected God. And so those who have this full revelation, full understanding, and still walk away and say, I don't want to have anything to do with it, that, that, that there is worse punishment for them. Now, when I say there are degrees of sin, some people will point out James chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, and they will say, I thought that all sin was the same, that every sin was equal, that a lie was just as bad as murder. Listen, I would much rather have you lie to me than murder me. There are degrees of sin. We see that in this passage. Otherwise, it's nonsensical. It's not making any sense. We see it in several others. Look at Matthew 23, 23. Here, Jesus makes the statement, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You pay a tenth of mint, dill, and cumin, and yet you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These things should have been done without neglecting the others. Now, of course, tithing is important, but he's saying that there's the more important matters, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. If it's more important, that means the other is less important, right? So there are degrees of sin. By the way, James, the James passage, uh, it's simply saying that when you sin, you're guilty of breaking the law. That's the point of it. And yes, all sin is going to be punished, and the punishment is hell. Uh, And hell is eternal. But there are apparently degrees of that punishment within it because it says some sins are worse than others. We see it in chapter 22, 37, and 38 as well of Matthew, where he says, where he speaks of the greatest commandment. What's the greatest commandment, by the way? If it's the greatest, that means the other commandments are 
not as great, right? Okay, this is, this is basic here, isn't it? Okay, we see it in John 19.11. Look at John 19.11. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. 19.11. You would have no authority over me at all, Jesus answered him, if it hadn't been given you from above. This is why the one who handed me over to you has the greater sin. NIV says guilty of a greater sin. Greater sin means less sin. So there are degrees of sin. That's what we understand. Uh, But all sin is bad in God's eyes. And the worst thing we could do, and this is why, especially here in the United States, we hear the gospel, we know so much, and yet if we walk away, that seems to be what he's referring to here, disregarding the law. How much worse punishment do you think one deserves who's trampled on the Son of God and regarded as profane the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified? Um, 30. Through 31, we also see that you don't want to be on God's bad side. He says, for we know the one who has said, vengeance belongs to me, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The God of the liberal church is a tame God. He doesn't even have a bark, let alone a bite. The God of the Bible is the creator of the universe whom we must give account to. He is a loving God, absolutely. And he is a holy God. And so the question is, are you sure that you're ready? And that's what we're seeing here. Are you ready for the soon coming of the king? Now, that's the warning part, and then he kind of backs off a little bit and gives us a, a reminder, okay? A remember, remember the early days. So he's speaking to this church, a church that, that was a mixed group of people, but, you know, they were predominantly Jewish believers in Christ and, and reminding them of the early days uh, of the past successes that they, uh, that they had. Look at 32 through 34. Remember the earlier days when after you had been enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to taunts and afflictions, and at other times you were companions of those who were treated that way. For you sympathized with the prisoner and accepted with joy the confiscation of your possessions because you know that you yourselves have a better and enduring possession. So he's reminding them, remember the early days. You received the truth. You embraced it with joy. Yes, you suffered, but you endured that suffering. And suffering produces maturity. That's what we see here. It's what we see in several other passages of Scripture, too. Look at James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. It's the next book to the right, by the way. So Hebrews and then James. James chapter 1, 2 through 4. I love the way this starts. Consider it a great joy. Woo! All right, that's, that's right. Is that how you feel about this? My brothers and sisters, whatever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. So he's calling us to consider it joy. Now, he's not saying be happy that you're going through trials. But he is saying that be happy that God is going to bring good from the trial. 
And that you can, because you have faith in God, you can consider it joy even in the midst of the trials that you're experiencing. Philippians 4, 4 through 8 starts out. It says, rejoice in the Lord. Yeah, always, no matter what's going on. That's what he's calling us to because we know Romans 8, 28, that God works everything out for our good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose. He promises he will work everything, all the bad, all the good, all the trials, all the struggles, and he will bring it into good for you and for the kingdom. Now, let me ask you a question. How many of you like to suffer? Nobody. No, no one. Okay, let me ask a different question then. (laughs) How many of you grew the most during times of suffering? Yeah. God knows this. So how many of you count it joy when you have suffered? Because we, not because of the suffering, but because of what we know the, in the future, what it's going to produce, because we have faith in God. And that's what he's calling them. Remember the early days. Yes, you were persecuted. Yes, you went through tough times, but God held you on. He gave you the strength. You endured. By the way, we are promised we will be persecuted. Matthew chapter 24, verse 9, in that passage that speaks of the signs of the end of time, the birth pains of what it's going to be like in the very end. We actually did a whole series on Matthew 24, looking at how this seems to be taking place even in our day, that we might be getting close to the end. We even also just finished the book of Revelation And walking through that, we saw that many of the signs seemed to be pointing that perhaps we're getting close to the end. But one of those signs, Matthew 24, 9, is that the church is going to be persecuted, that persecution will increase on the people of God. In fact, uh, 2 Timothy 3, 12, whether we're in the last days or not, look at this promise from God. 2 Timothy, uh, it's just to the left. Your Bibles. Second Timothy three verse twelve. It says, In fact, all who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now that's one of those promises. You know the books they have like the promises of God. You know, you ever read one of those? Did you ever read this promise in a in the promises of God? It's not in there. But it's in the book, isn't it? In the Bible. This is a promise. You will be persecuted. But are you ready? Because it's happening. It's happening to our brothers and sisters in Christ right now. I have an article from the Voice of the Martyrs. This is a concerning prison camps in North Korea, which they say are worse than the labor camps. It says about 30,000 of North Korea's estimated 100,000 Christians are thought to be suffering in one of four known Kwanliso camps. These camps are reserved for prisoners convicted of serious crimes, such as attempting to flee the country, having unauthorized contact with South Koreans, or being a Christian. North Korean defectors say Christianity is considered as dangerous as narcotics in North Korea. 
The government views Christianity as a sin and as a way the West tries to invade the country with Western and capitalist ideas. Some have reported that the North Korean government even likens Christian missionary work to vampirism. In the Kwanliso camps, inmates are often locked in cages like animals, forced to stand for hours in torturous positions and beaten until they vomit blood. Nearly 40% of inmates die of starvation, while others commonly lose up to half their body weight and survive on rats. Inmates' relatives are also often detained considered guilty by association. I I can't even imagine that. That's horrific, but it's happening to our brothers and sisters right now. And North Korea is not the only place where persecution is happening. And according to the Bible, it's going to come here eventually as well. Uh, So, Microwave Christianity or compartmentalized Christianity is not going to help you if this happens. Microwave Christianity, that's what we like today. You know, just uh, I want just a little bit of Jesus, just give it to me quick so I can get out of here, compartmentalize it, have my little religious thing, and then the rest of the week I just live however I want to. Okay, that is not going to help you if persecution comes. What is going to help is devotion to the Lord. When you commit, when you surrender to him, and he gives you his Holy Spirit, and his Holy Spirit helps you endure, and that's what we're seeing here. He's appealing to them. Remember, God has already given you the strength to endure. You can do it with his strength, with his help. But remember the early days. And then he finishes, focus on the future. Life lived in light of the coming of Christ. Uh, Let me read the passage first. Notice what he says here. So don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you need endurance, so that after you have done God's will, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, the coming one will come and not delay. Yeah, love that part. Are you looking forward to the second coming of Christ? It says here, he's going to come and not delay. But my righteous one will live by faith, and if he draws back, I have no pleasure in him. But we are not those who draw back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and are saved. Let me read the third part of Trevathan's story. He continues... He says, while this is an unavoidable and even central aspect of the fear of God, it is not the last word. Let's return to our exercise of imagination. You, the traitor to president and country, have been exchanged for agents held by the enemy. After a long, draining interrogation, you've been left to rot in the enemy gulag. After all, who really has use for a traitor? Suddenly, one day, your guards clean you up and prepare to ship you back to the United States. En route, you discover to your amazement that you have been ransomed from prison and given a presidential pardon. In fact, the president wants to talk directly to you. 
As you wait outside the Oval Office, one of the Secret Service guards shakes his head in disbelief and informs you that in order to obtain your release, the president has turned over his only son, a rising young military officer, to the enemy. And just then the door to the Oval Office opens and you face the president. Now how do you feel? Certainly the old awe has not completely disappeared and shame at the enormity of your treason has also not disappeared even though the old terror at facing the one who betrayed you could be set aside. But what must flood over you is overwhelming gratitude, love, trust, and willingness to do anything you're asked to do. Nothing you can give in the way of gratitude and renewed loyalty could ever be enough, nor would you hesitate to give it. This combination of emotions and commitments the Bible also calls the fear of the Lord. Psalm 130, if you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. (laughs) But we focus on the future, a life lived in light of the second coming of Christ. We see that the reward at the end is worth waiting for. Notice all the way through this last section, verse 35, uh, well, even verse 34, you have a better and enduring possession. Verse 35, which has, you don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward coming. Uh, But you need to endure for yet in a very little while, the coming one will come and not delay. So look to the reward. Have a life focused not on the here and now so much as on serving God now, and the reward will come in the future. So many of us, we're just so stuck in our own selfish, self-centered lives. It's all about me and just give me happiness and peace and all that stuff. And we miss out on happiness and peace and all that stuff. Because that only comes when you don't focus on that stuff. And when you focus on Jesus, and then he gives you those incredible tidbits of his presence, uh, the tastes of his goodness, you know, that, it, it, but then the promise. Wow. Have you seen the promise? The other passages that talk about it? Look at Revelation chapter 21. This is at the very end. It's the last book of the Bible. Revelation 21, he's describing after it's all said and done. Look at how he describes what it's going to be like. Verse 3, then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples. And God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. We're going to be with God himself forever and ever. There's not going to be any more crying or pain or sorrow, no more suffering. Isaiah 25 describes a big banquet feast that we are going to be all at this table, all as his family, okay? We're at this banquet feast. By the way, Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a room for you. In the old languages, it says a mansion. That's a misunderstanding of the Latin word, mansiones. Okay, so 
bad translation. You don't get a mansion. We're a family. We have, we each get a room. We all live in the same house. We got this big table that we get to eat at and have this incredible feast where there's the, the, the death shrouds gone. No more death. That's what it's going to be like. I like chapter 11. Look at Isaiah 11, 6 through 9. Here's a, another uh, peek at what, uh, what the end is going to be like uh, using just analogy to help us. Look at this. It says, The wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf, the young lion, and the fattened calf will be together, and a child will lead them. The cow and the bear will graze. Their young ones will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like cattle. An infant will play beside the cobra's pit, and a toddler will put his hand into a snake's den. They will not harm or destroy each other on my entire holy mountain, for the land will be as full of the knowledge of the Lord as the sea is filled with water. That's going to be a time to be able to be alive, isn't it? Don't you? I mean, I look forward to that. That's what he's saying in our passage. Don't turn back. But what we also see is that Jesus is coming back soon. As I said, we don't have time to look at Matthew 24, but it presents the case that we're getting close to the end. And if Jesus is coming back soon, then all the more this passage becomes important to us. And by the way, I also think it finishes very, very positively. All true Christians will persevere. Now there is a, uh, it says, look at verse 39, but we are not those who draw back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and are saved. True believers don't draw back. True believers do have faith and are saved. Okay, that's what he's saying here. Now, there is some discrepancy. Christians disagree on this. Good, solid Christians disagree on the warning passages. We've talked about this before, that some feel that this is referring to Christians, that a Christian could actually walk away. And they typically will point to uh, verse 29, where it says the covenant by which he was sanctified. Verse 30, the Lord will judge his people. So it, it sounds like it's referring to God's people, but I am convinced that it is not. That once again, he's speaking this to a church very much like our church. And in any church, you're going to have a mixed group of people. You're going to have some who are true believers in Christ. You're going to have some others who think they're true believers in Christ, but are not. And you're going to have some others who are on the outside looking in on this thing called Christianity. And that's probably what's going on here. There were some Jewish people attending, looking into this thing called Christ. There were others who had already supposedly embraced Christ, but were perhaps not true believers as defined in the book of Hebrews. And then others who are true believers. And he's saying the true believer... We are not those who draw back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and are saved. All true Christians will persevere. I want to show you another promise. I like the promise. This one is in the promise books, okay? Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 35. We could look at the entire chapter of Romans chapter 8, but we don't have time. So just look at verse 35 and, uh, and following He says, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Now, that's a great question. 
Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. The persecution that we might have to face, no matter what, that cannot separate you from the love of Christ if you're a true believer. He goes on. He says, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. (laughs) He's going out of his way to say absolutely nothing can separate us. By the way, a lot of that language when he refers to the angels, rulers, uh, powers, and so forth, those are words that he uses in other contexts that he's referring to the demonic realm. I, I really want to encourage you, come to the angels and demons seminar. We need to understand the demonic realm and the spiritual realm and how it works, okay? But what he's saying here is we don't have to fear him at all. Because nothing can separate us from the light. By the way, just to make sure he covered all the bases, nor any other created thing. By the way, that includes you, right? You're a created thing, aren't you? Okay. Nothing can separate you from the love of God because all true Christians, by the power of the Holy Spirit, will persevere. But therein lies the question, are you a Christian? Do you both fear and love God? Do you long for his return? Are you ready for his return? Let's pray. Father, I pray for everybody here. And I know that there are those who are on the outside looking in and they're just looking, checking out this thing called Christianity. And I I pray that you would help them to see just how awesome you are and how marvelous you are. That you have given us these warnings ahead of time because you don't want us to walk away. And that they would see that kindness from you They would repent of their sins and place their faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone for their salvation. They'd even come to the place of outwardly expressing that in baptism. You'd draw them to yourself today. I pray for those who perhaps think they're believers, but maybe they are not. They're not sure at the very least, and I ask that you would draw them to yourself and help them to say, I want to make sure today. I want to be ready today. And I pray for the rest, the believers, that each one you would give them strength. You would fill them with the Holy Spirit. You would help them to endure and help them to even come to the place where they can even count it joy when they're suffering various things because they know that they know that they know you have promised you will turn it into good and you will bring maturity out of this. So bless each person here, I pray in Jesus' name.
Let's stand. Worship our God.